0: Hi, this is Mary, and welcome to my podcast, Mental State, where I dive into all things mental health and more. So today I'm really excited to share my podcast with my friend Jacqueline, and we are also having a special guest on the show. So as I talk so passionately about attachment and how it affects so much of how we connect to anything or attach to anything that we care about, And there is certainly a correlation between attachment and loss. So loss of a loved one, loss of a relationship, could be either, could be more. And there are differences between those two things. So we have a guest that reached out to us, and I want to let Jacqueline talk about her a little bit more before she comes on the show.
1: So Jen reached out to us after listening to our podcast, one of our episodes around attachment, and it really struck a chord with her. And so she asked us how the loss of a loved one, in her case, the loss of a sibling, she lost her brother at age 12, how this affects our attachment style. And so we have Jennifer uh, with us today. And uh, Nice to meet you, Jennifer. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. I'm curious, what attachment style do you currently identify with? Definitely anxious
2: and maybe at times disorganized, but absolutely
1: anxious. And was it as you were growing up before your brother died, would you say you identified as anxious then or something else?
2: I mean, I was a really quiet kid. would say I was shy, but I think I was anxious because I always
1: wanted approval so I could see that developing very early on Mm -hmm. and what was your relationship like with your parents did you feel particularly close to them did you feel quite nurtured by them and this is all where I just want to focus on all before the loss at this point
2: well we grew up and parents were divorced by fifth grade for me My mother, I felt, was very nurturing, and I always felt really close to her. I enjoyed weekends together, and I I always felt very loved. My dad, it's funny because it's reversed as as I've gotten older. I'm really close to my dad now, so I feel so bad seeing this, but it was so complicated with him. It was like I never felt really accepted. You know, I was chubby or I was this or that. And, and this started at a very young age. So he was very distant. And then my brother, he was able to connect a little better with boys. So they had kind of their thing, sports and cars and whatever else. And I was like this girl that they tried to take fishing and, you know, I wouldn't be wearing the right clothes. And so a little... A little difficulty
1: in connecting, for sure.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what was your relationship like with your brother?
2: I mean, we were so close in age, and he was, like, this super outgoing kid. He ran for class president, and he played soccer, and he had, like, this cool bike that he could spin around and, like, hop on it. And I was, like, this little quiet wallflower, and it, like, you know, was shy. And so we, I feel like we had these identities already created, like she's shy, he's outgoing. And so with that, I thought he was like, like, oh, you know, I thought he was pretty amazing. And then, but and we fought, you know, totally had the brother and sister fighting all the time thing. But I mean, I loved him. I, I wouldn't have thought, you know, like our lives would change. And he was just like an extension of me, you know, like. He was always there, and and I loved him, for sure, to pieces, so. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and what was that like when you experienced hearing the news that your brother had passed? What, What was that like for you? I mean, it was like,
2: it's so hard describe in a way because it felt like a regular day. You know, my mom took me and a couple of my friends to go thrift store shopping. You know, we lived in Las Vegas. We were in all the like thrifty cool, you know, whatever trend we were into. And the day went on. And I remember my friends and I walked to the store and then all of a sudden my dad comes and picks me up. And I'm like, what is going on here? You know, it's just this unusual behavior. And took me home and they told me and I don't I don't know if I really remember a lot you know my friends tell me things but I don't I think it was more like a like I kind of blanked out for a day or two and I think I spent a day in my mom's bedroom with like just the windows drawn and you know didn't really know how to process it or anything
1: yeah well it's so unbelievable where do we Begin to start processing, and and I think, you know, Claire Bidwell Smith. She has a book out there called "Anxiety: The The Hidden Stage of Grief." And one of the factors, yeah, I think, contributes to anxiety after uh, loss is that losses can happen in everyday life, in the sense of everything's totally fine, totally normal one minute, and the next, your world has collapsed. So. Yes. What does that mean for how we navigate the world, especially if we might not have been given all the tools around how we handle things that we're inherently powerless over, which is actually quite a lot, no matter how much we as humans try to fool ourselves, right? And so then, of course, it's, well, what can I trust, right? And anxiety, in essence, that root of anxious attachment is loss of trust in self, loss of trust in others, loss of trust in life.
2: Yes. It's funny that you mentioned that, actually, because that brings to my attention, like, certain things that I do that I would never maybe, like, tell many people or, like, think about. But, like, I definitely don't have that. What's that where people tap the the handle, like, 10 times? Like, I don't have that. OCD. Yeah, I don't have that at all. But I have certain things where if things flash into my mind... Like a negative thought, like right now, my son is away for summer because his father's in California, so if I ever have like anything negative I'm saying, I think like I have to like pray like I have to be like I'm so thankful for him, so I'm so thankful for him so there's this there's always been this underlying anxious thing like when I named my son, I had this underlying anxious like like i was I wanted to name him after my brother, but then i I was afraid to give him the name of my brother because I was like, what if history repeats itself, so it's manifested and it,
1: Definitely in all kinds of ways. What are some other ways that you see it's manifested for you?
2: I mean, definitely we're in relationships. And I think that's the thing is that I haven't completely been able to identify. I think, I think I've sabotaged a lot of things. I don't want to get emotional. I think I've, you know, like at times been like the like leave them before they leave me. And that's also like relationships with like my father and, and things kind of intertwined
1: with it. I think- can, like, can you say a little more about that when you say things with your father and a little intertwined with that?
2: Um, I think because, like I said, I have a really great relationship with my father. So there's a part of me that felt really bad saying this. It took well, years- Well, let, so. me just,
1: let me just pause that for one second because I think you bring up such a good point. And Mary and I like to talk about how- you know, one of the things I think is beautiful about attachment theory is it's not a blame game around our parents. It's survival mechanisms, right? Like anxiety is inherently a survival response. And there's a certain amount of anxiety all of us as human beings have. If we weren't anxious, we wouldn't want to feed ourselves. We wouldn't want to take care of ourselves in any capacity, right? It's just when it's triggered to an extreme degree that it and it pulls us out of our more authentic experience. Does it create problems? But worrying about certain things can actually be good, right, to to a certain level, right? So it's not right. about getting rid of it all. But, you know, our parents and some of this is, is biological, right? How they learn to cope with things or yeah. whatever was automatic within them. Is how they learn to respond. So it doesn't mean they're bad or good oh, because they learned that from their parents, right? And we learned that it from perfect. them. And our DNA right now is informed by our own experiences, right? So that's going to inform, even without the action, of what kind of let's say tendencies as far as coping strategies go, uh, off onto our own offspring, right? So it's not about whether the parent did good or bad, but more like understanding how they were kind of taught or how it was imprinted for them in navigating what life threw at them when they were dysregulated.
2: Yes, absolutely. And like, I love that from your podcast, dysregulated. Like that's something I think I put in my notes to kind of like always pull me back and think about, you know, my behaviors and actions. And it's still a work in progress, but I love that. And yeah, I mean, like with my father and my mother, I feel like I've looked so much into their history of how they grew up and heard bits and pieces, or like my mom will tell me more. And now kind of understanding how they grew up and like what life was like back then, like it makes it easier for me to understand how they raised me and why they did certain things. So for my father, you know, he had a mother that came over from Germany, you know, the Holocaust survivor, and then someone here, but are meshed and they have this household that sounded very difficult. So he grew up in a certain way. And even though it was painful some of the things he did, I I get it. And yeah, just many years of like arguing with him and working with him. Like we, you know, he's probably one of my best friends. But but as a youngster, I felt very picked on. My nose was too big, like things about my weight. And I I mentioned to him this to him a while ago and actually got in a really big sight. He was like, I didn't do that. And I'm like, OK, well, well
1: but if those things good, like that, I just want to uh, that is a dismissive reaction. And why would somebody have that reaction? Because that's how they learn to cope with things that might bring them yeah. pain, right? Like, in essence, yeah. I don't fire your dad. I, I wouldn't want to feel that, right? Because that's too I don't yeah. want to look at my behavior in that way, which, again, isn't bad or good. It's just how he learned to manage what was inherently uncomfortable for him.
2: yeah. And I mean, I heard as a a youngster and a teenager, he was like pretty unattractive and, you know, went through his struggles. So through talking through, you know, people like family, I think he said things to me because he thought he was protecting me in a way. But, you know, especially for like a young woman saying things about like your looks, your weight, it's like, whoa, you know, I mean, already society is like, you need to be this and look this and whatever. So I had a rough relationship with my dad until I was in my twenties. I felt like, you know, I, I moved away somewhat to like get away from them. And I felt like even he would visit me. There was always like something about like my weight or, you know, something like that. And so that I think combined with like the loss of my brother, I think I just felt very like, kind of unlovable for a long time.
0: Yeah, yeah. And the thing also what we talk about a lot too with, with the anxious attachment style is that Anxious attachers usually look towards the external. So when mm-hmm. your dad is commenting about your physical appearance, right, that is something external. And yeah. so, and so that sort of is like, oh, I need to look outside of myself in order to get some approval from someone. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's like, well, we're not getting it from one of our primary caregivers. Then we might start to look elsewhere. And that's where we start to get those like kind of like maladaptive behaviors and into yeah. these like more, you know, tumultuous types of relationships. Right. Yeah. And then you get into that cycle of the the sabotaging. And I love yeah. earlier when you said, I'm going to leave me before I'm going to leave you before you leave me. Yeah. Right. That is like that is a way of the anxious attacher to control the situation. Because like we were talking a lot about control, the anxiety. So I think that's just like kind of an interesting correlation.
1: You know, I think avoidance aren't necessarily aware of their anxiety, right? Because their they're parasympathetic nervous system, that system of ease uh, is working triple time. It's on steroids. So and it's doing that because it's working triple time at suppressing anxiety, and so that's why oftentimes when we have the anxious avoidant dynamic, the anxious type feels even more anxiety because they're picking up on the anxiety that the avoidance is <laughs> suppressing. And <laughs> you know, so even if on the surface you say I become I I've become ambivalent about this person or I'm no longer interested, it can appear right ambivalent and even felt as ambivalent or not felt at all because it is ambivalent. But underneath that, there really is right that suppression of anxiety or perhaps somebody is more conscious of it. I, I'm so scared I need to get out. Right. And yeah. I love how you brought up the disorganized because we can lead with that anxious type or lead with that dismissive style. And it's when you tend to ping pong that, that that's the disorganization, yeah. right? Like which one am I going to be? in this partnership and if we got mixed messaging or chaos happened or a loss like you experienced that can you know along with we've mentioned there were a lot of different risk factors shall we say uh, Mm -hmm. that you grew up with that might have created more of a propensity or a foundation for developing a more insecure style and then we experience the heavy loss and then it throws you into the other the other end right or even if you have a certain amount of security in your life and then you experience something that ruptures that security old insecure parts of you can come up even if you never identified as an insecure attacher in the first place
2: yes i mean it it's just interesting hearing that too because it's like some at moments i'm like i feel like i'm kind of avoiding certain things but then i'm like So then I like hear myself and I see myself even emailing you like, is that the right time? I'm I'm so anxious. But yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, I think for a long time I've been trying to figure out myself to try to be a better person and then be a better partner and a better parent and a better, you know employee or better you know business owner and you know when I would do that pushing full I think sometimes I would like look up stuff and be like personality disorders. since I was always like oh my gosh like what's wrong with me you know and always like kind of thinking like you know why am I behaving this way like at certain moments it feels so chaotic and like that's why when you said dysregulation I was like oh my gosh like so many things these things are like checking my boxes like I need to really look into this and just keep learning more and all these things, you know, like since I found your podcast to like just register so much, I was just like,
0: like jaw dropping, you know, I mean, it's been really remarkable for me. And I love, and, and again, like with the anxious attachment style, you're like, okay, let me look up on the internet. What's wrong with me? Right. We're looking to some like kind of external resource to reinforce or explain or something like something Mm -hmm. out there has to be explaining what's wrong with me. And it kind of made me think about you as a 12 year old, hearing about your brother dying. And, you know, I'm just curious, like, what was it as a 12 year old that you could grab onto that gave you a sense of safety in that moment, right? You're talking about my dad was emotionally unavailable. My mom exhibited some codependency traits. So it's like, I can imagine a 12 year old just feeling so like untethered in that moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, and that's that's interesting for me to think about that because my mom said she took me to counseling and I was like, I don't wanna be here. So she never took me back. Or with my kids, you know, we do something. I don't wanna do this. And I'm like, well, we're going back because I'm the adult and I know better. And my mom, I think, of course, felt like she was doing the right thing. My mom was very, like, loving and sweet. But because of that, I think I went in different directions. I didn't do sports. I didn't do particularly a lot, except for hanging out with my friends. And what did that lead to? Drinking alcohol, you know, smoking pot, you know, and just things that when I look back, I'm like, gosh, like. I had a lot of potential. I was a smart kid and not like my life was like wasted and, you know, my life's a failure, but I'm like, I just look at it now where it's like, what a waste of time. You know, I could have been doing so many other really great things. So that's and, and, what I did.
0: And and when you when you described yourself as a wallflower, you know, smoking pot as a kid, drinking alcohol, it kind of reinforces that, you know, because it's like, oh, now I need these substances in order to connect to other people.
2: Yeah, because everybody was doing it, you know, all the cool kids were doing it or, you know, my friends, one of my neighbors that was older, you know, and so to hang out with them and sit in, that's that's what you did, And you know, ditch and hang out and, you know, just things that really
0: didn't agree with my system. And, and it sounds like you were looking for connection. Yes. Absolutely.
1: Looking for connection along with regulation, right? And alcohol, drug use, those are all auto regulation, which, you know, Western society is really good at auto regulation, which is distraction. I I don't feel good. Let me go watch TV. I don't feel good. Let me even go exercise. Let me have a glass of wine, whatever it is. And when we're, you know, when we're in the throes of something, that feels so incredibly awful for looking for relief in some capacity and so a quick relief right can be drugs alcohol whatever anything it is to distract in some way especially if we weren't given the skill set of oh these are the feelings they're really painful how do i if i were your parent how am i helping my child build that that tolerance for their own emotional experience. Because what happens, right, developmentally is the parent looks at the child, says they're in so much distress, the avoidant freezes, the avoidant distances as a way to cope because they don't know how to handle the child's distress. It dysregulates them. Or if they see the child in anxiety, sometimes they're, you know, maybe over-coddling and then other times they're pulling away, you know, that unpredictable style comes up, right? And so again, you know, when I think about your mom, like in her best way, she was trying to support you dealing with her own, I'm imagining dysregulation of how -hmm. do I help a child in a situation I inherently feel powerless over. And so I I love the way you describe that, because these are such common scenarios, right? Of like how we might unintentionally respond in a way that is dysregulating that we might not even be aware of.
2: Absolutely, and I mean, my mother uh, my father, I mean, because he was kind of distant, I don't know exactly what he did to to cope my mom buried herself at work, so I would come home, you know, latch eat kid, and I would be home for hours alone and left to do whatever you know, so yeah, I mean, it's just no tools. Nobody knows what they're doing. That was kind of the situation. Nobody really knew what they were doing. And I mean, not like if something horrible happened, which again, me with my little like be OCD behaviors, you know, I don't, I don't know, of course, exactly how I'd handle it, but I feel very thankful and grateful that I have somewhat of a skill set to help to have an idea how I would help my children. But yeah, I mean, different times and different people and different situations. So,
0: yeah, and there, there's also not a lot of, not the same amount of resources in education back then that we have now. And I'm just imagining you as what you, the self-described latchkey kid. Mm-hmm. And then when you do have that experience, what do you want to do? You, that, that essentially that's a little bit of an abandonment in a way. It's like mm-hmm. you're coming home to an empty house as a child. So what do you do? You know, you either completely disconnect and you kind of turn off like what Jacqueline said, you become avoidant, you depressed, or you want to connect, right? So I will do anything to connect. I don't care what it is. Oh, the cool kids are doing drugs and drinking down the street. Sure, I'll do that, right? You were doing whatever it was, whatever was available for you in that moment right? That provided that immediate connection. It's kind of like that was your only resource.
2: Yes. And looking back on it, I mean, I completely agree with you because looking back on it, I don't know any other avenue I could have gone down. You know, I mean, when I was old enough and I got a car, then eventually, you know, I, I got a job at like 15, you know, living in Las Vegas and that kept me somewhat busy. but. Yeah, just with friends, you know, friends were the resource, definitely.
1: Well, it seems like friends and even the friend of like substance, right? And when we're in the throes of like, uh, like oftentimes active addiction, for example, is when you're in an episode, disorganized behavior, the brain becomes rigid, right? It's looking to respond in a specific way that's not necessarily... I say logical, but what I really mean by that is regulated, is a secure yes. response. And hearing about how, who knows what your dad was doing? So, right, that's like avoidant in some capacity. of We don't know. As well as triggering the, I don't, what is that? And mm-hmm. workaholism, which was happening on your mom's side, is an avoidant behavior, right? Avoidants yeah. tend to be workaholics. They often can be very, very successful in business, right? Because they're throwing themselves into that. (laughs) There you go, right? And and again, these things aren't all bad or good. It's like, how am I learning to regulate and navigate through my own dysregulation? You know, and yeah, and so then you have this one thing: uh, friends through substance, which is inherently kind of disorganized because how I learn connection is only through something that's actually disconnecting me from self. So there's like, you can see developmentally where the brain is starting to get the messages, you know, as well as what's happening with your parents. I should be close to these people who I'm not close to, right? Our primary caregivers are, they're the ones we should trust the most. They're the ones we should feel safe with yet this relationship is distant, yet here it is. And then I have this confusing incident that happened. And so then, of course, like Mary said, the only answer is connection, but connection with people who are inherently disconnecting. Not that alcohol and and drugs is always disconnecting, right? It can be points of celebration. Most of the time, we're not using it in that capacity.
2: Absolutely. And that was for a long time where it was at. And then, I mean you know, I started going to college and then I eventually moved out of state because my friends kind of stayed with the the drugs and the alcohol. And I think I, I don't know how I had some clarity and I was like, I need to get away from this. And I started moving forward, but, you know, was still always like, you know, like always a, being, I think, almost trained in a sense, thinking that's like a form of relaxation, you know, it's always been like something that you know, I mean, I can have a drink, but, you know, I just, I don't like to keep alcohol in the house to this day because it's like, you know, it's it's just too easy to turn to it. And it's probably something I learned very early that, oh, come home. I'm tired of having a drink. Oh, come home. You know, and it's like, it's just, it's unfortunate.
0: Yeah. And it's also, you know, societally and culturally accepted. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. and so that's, that's, And then and so we can kind of like let that be our excuse. Like, well, it's it's fine. It's only one drink or it's only two glasses of wine because. Right. Everyone else is doing it.
2: Right. And it's interesting because I am a single mother going on to the dating scene, how it's like everyone's like, do you want to meet for a drink? And it's like. You know, I've had times where I've been like, why don't we meet for a coffee? You know, like. Let's go for a walk. And it's, it's kind of interesting just talking and meeting people, people that almost seem like they don't want to go out during the day and get a coffee. It has to be at night and get a drink. And it's like, okay, you know, I mean, it's, it's such a societal norm and
0: I don't really like it. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. So one of the things that you said was that now that you're learning more about attachment, Mm -hmm. you can look back and see how it was really steering a lot of your relationships. And (laughs) I love your response. You're like, Oh yeah. (laughs) And so, yeah, I, I just want to, you know, I just want to hear more about that. And, and now that you can kind of like the now you who can reflect back on the past you. Yeah. What, what have you learned?
2: Oh my gosh, so much. And I still like I still have so far to go, but it's interesting because I, you know, knew we were going to be speaking today and I almost reached out to like my first real boyfriend when I was and I mean, I was like 20, you know, like I didn't have a real serious boyfriend, so I was like 20, 21 and we're friends on Facebook and everything. And I started kind of writing like, yeah, hey, like, remember, you know, way back when when we were dating and I'm like, what? what kind of crazy things did I do? And just be gentle on me. But then I deleted it. So I kind of felt do I, I can handle all of this today? <laughs> but like, he, I mean, when I look at my first boyfriend, I mean, he was a lot. We were these two like very rough people that came together. And as I look back and I'm like, I really feel embarrassed my behavior. Like my first real relationship. I mean, I was so anxious and like, I mean, like a nightmare, like probably wanted to know, like, what are you doing? Like, where are you all the time? You know? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like I would be so annoyed by me. And I mean, and there were issues in the relationship, too, then that went, you know, in the wrong direction, I think, like, he cheated on me. So then I was extra, you know, anxious. And and then when we broke up, he got together with someone kind of soon and I would see them out. And, you know, like the local, like, little clubs and bars and I would be such a nightmare. And it took me a long time to get over it and kind of just act act normal. And now when I look back, I mean, there's a part of me, yeah, but I wouldn't just be like, I am so sorry. (laughs) I'm so sorry for who I was. And and then looking back, you know, some guys that I dated, I remember, you know, dating a guy that was like really handsome. And I think I broke it off really soon because I was just afraid he's enough I know who I really was. You know, I was just like, crazy, like unworthy person, you know, I was so anxious and so unsure if I was worthy of that. And then into later years, you know, I'd have two children, there's two different fathers. And I was always like, I'm never going to be a single mom. And, you know, and I am. And I just had no idea whatsoever made any groundwork, any framework, anything to like really build a relationship with someone that you could build a life with. You know, I just didn't really have any idea what I was doing. And the people that I picked were definitely not good people. They're not people I would want my kids to be with. I mean, they're nice people in their own ways, but they didn't have the values that I hold very important you know like family and respect and trust and you know my my daughter's father we were together actually off and on for 10 years and so this is like a very somewhat more recent relationship and i mean like we've moved on we we actually have a friendship and he'll lean on me from time to time which i talked to my therapist about but when i look at that i'm just like how did i stay in this situation you know i you know so i'm out of that probably three years excuse me but you know, just things now that I still look back. I'll look back three things a year ago and be like, wow, I can't believe where I was there then and where I am now. So this anxious attachment style that I have, I mean, it's still like, I don't know if it's like I kind of hit an aha moment and now like I'm kind of growing really quickly. It feels like it, honestly, but I just, I look back at me and some of my choices and I'm like, what was I thinking?
1: You know, I love the way that you said, what was I thinking about that? Or I can't believe I did that. Because what I hear in that is you look back from today's viewpoint in a regulated state, that secure state and say, oh, that behavior seemed a little imbalanced. Well, that behavior was fueled from dysregulation, right? That behavior was fueled from dysregulation and not knowing how to get in regulation. And here's the thing. When we have an insecure attachment style, although many of us might have certain values, uh, morals, the compass we live by, those are only applicable when we're in the secure state. It goes out the window when we're in our throes of the insecure behavior, right? Because remember that dysregulation is running the show. So the work around coming back into that secure state Is having, first of all, to create an awareness, whether we're in the anxious behavior or the avoidant behavior, that we're actually in a state of dysregulation, right? Because that starts to help us have a little more space around, rather than being so over-identified within the moment that we can't tell what's happening, we understand that this is a point of dysregulation and we start to build the capacity and tolerance for the feeling and especially, right, anxiety is that survival response. So what's beneath the anxiety? What, what, what fears am I really experiencing here? And the more that we're able to support that, tolerate that, and then have the ability to support that, that brings us back into regulation, which, again, secure people also experience dysregulation. We all do. It's just about our capacity to hold and tolerate our experience and our ability to support for ourselves, as well as ask for help from others, right? And I was thinking about the loss of your brother. And sometimes we say, you know, I've had clients say to me like, well, I had a pretty happy childhood, why? Then I find out about a relationship with a sibling, for example, or stuff that happened in school. And these can be, right, the straw that breaks the camel's back in some capacity. And I would invite you to, as you continue your exploration, the anxious behaviors are almost like those are easy to spot right the yes. avoidant behaviors are a little harder right because that ambivalence comes up and i'm really curious about you know i think a lot of it is uh, learning to process grief about any kind of avoidance correlated with the loss of your brother right and like what what that shut down within yourself that might need a little unearthing and building that capacity to feel some of that like what that loss was really like as well as yeah. rebuilding that i don't know what your relationship is like with your your brother but just because someone dies does not mean the relationship dies right it's still very much alive within us so how do we like reconnect that bridge right like i believe the way right. forward is through like integration it's not shutting down the relationship we know that doesn't work if it worked you know many of us would be fine <laughs> yeah <laughs> I would
2: be fine. <laughs> Don't, no I'm fabulous. not know to be Yes. Yeah, that really, that really touches. I, you know, I feel like I've always had some kind of connection to him, but, you know, I think that's one I need to definitely look into and explore a little, because there is like some feelings of security of just thinking about him and. Not to be like, woo-woo, but I'll have, you know, he's definitely been in my dreams where he's there. And then we're hanging out on all of these great themes. Then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, but you're not going to be here. You know, like you're not actually going to be here. So it is interesting. I believe in the relationship continuing too. and, And sometimes I don't think I'm really sure what that looks like, you know. And I think I make myself very busy with my life probably to like kind of avoid certain things like that. You know,
1: those are going to be your windows, right? Because what happens sometimes in relationships, we get we get triggered by whatever we perceive our, our partners or prospective romantic partners behavior to be. And as Mary said before, right, we're looking that anxious part looks outside and the avoidant yeah. does so, too, in the sense of this is not my problem. I don't want to deal with that thing outside because the avoidant says deep down, I'm afraid I won't be able to meet your needs or you won't be able to meet mine. And I really, again, see that correlation with that side in experiencing loss and how your parents responded, as well as just plain old, even if you were an adult, experiencing the the sudden loss of someone like that, what it can trigger, as well as the anxious side, which the root of that is that low self-esteem, which none of these, again, when we're in a secure state, we can all say, well, none of that makes any sense. But Mm -hmm. when we're in the dysregulation, it's like it's amnesia. All all of that's out the window. And so starting to fire in those moments of, oh, is this really if I sit with my dysregulation around what somebody has done or not done and start to explore my feelings, is there something underneath that feeling underneath might not have anything to do with the person standing in front of you? It could be about something that was actually triggered by perhaps a memory, even if it's a, a physical memory, right? The body keeps the score yeah. in that way. It could be more about that, right? Your job is, is to come close to yourself in those ways and have learn the ability to support yourself with that felt experience.
0: Yeah. And I think that just, you know, kind of like doing that, that mental review of, of past relationships, just like what Jacqueline was saying, it's less about the person that's in front of you. And it's more about sort of like, what am I, you know, I'm dysregulated in this moment. What am I, you know, what was I feeling and what is this really related to? Right. So if I, if I look back on my past relationships, I can start connecting the dots, you know, to, to earlier childhood, you know, things and events that, that happened. So, you know, I think that's, that's also can also be a really good exercise. And because you can look back at these relationships from a very secure place, it might be helpful to do that exercise now where you can say, okay, that relationship that I was with in, in my twenties where he cheated on me, why was I putting up with somebody who cheated on me? What was really going on here? And I can imagine and it's like, I don't want this person to abandon me. Yes. Where else was I abandoned in my life? Oh, I was left alone as a child. My dad, who know what you were saying? Who knows where he was? My mom was at work. I don't want people to, I don't want anyone to abandon me. So I'm going to hold on to these crumbs. Yes. at least
2: I have the crumbs. It's so funny you say crumbs because that's totally, you know, through a lot of my relationships what people have said to me and I've said where I, I finally when I finally realize that it's time to leave a relationship I'll be like it's always kind of the same scenario I you know after listening to your podcast and kind of like creating these scenarios which they're whoever they are or whatever but like I've recreated these scenarios so many times in my life where at the end I'm like I'm not okay with breadcrumbs I've gotta go you know, and, but for a, a while, I'll stay around. And it's interesting how it plays out, you know?
0: And I think it's also really important to have that feeling of compassion, right? For that younger, mm-hmm. younger version of yourself who was just kind of like blindly trying to make her way, right? Cause she just didn't have any role models to show her, like, what, what does being insecure attachment look like? And yeah. so, and also, as we know, it takes two to tango. So that person that you're in a relationship with is also coming in with their own stuff, right? So it's not just, you're not the one who's showing up and dropping all of the bombs, right? They're also kind of participating in their own way. So it's just kind of like, you know, just looking at your side of the street, you know, you know, what was going on (laughs) in your side of the street? And And so I think that's just it can just be such a helpful exercise because as you move forward and and start new relationships with other people, being able to kind of like have a a nice little like broad sort of spectrum of what was going on in your past can really start to inform how you are in your relationships now so that when Jack, you know what Jacqueline was saying, when you're starting to feel dysregulated, you can go like, oh, right. And I was dysregulated in that relationship and that relationship and that relationship. And these are the reasons why. And this is what it traces back to. And then, you know, if you do feel comfortable with whomever you're in a relationship with, you can start to say, oh, right now I'm feeling abandoned when you stay at work till 10 o'clock and not let me know what's going on in a regulated way, not in a heightened way, which is going to probably heighten the other person or put them on the defense, but just like, oh, now I have a better understanding of what's going on with me.
1: And I'm going to add one more thing to that. It's it's the, the next level to what Mary said is not just in the I statement with the, like, let's call it the open door, the flexible mind, which is like, that's the regulated state, right? Where we have some awareness, we're able to deliver things and we'll call it like a softer, more open way is also giving a solution, right? What is it that you need and not in a demanding way, but would you, you know, do you think you would be able to, to do this and being really curious about their response? If they say, no, I'm curious of, of why, right? They might have a really good reason why sometimes this happens. Maybe they have their own trigger around um, it feels like I'm answering to a parent when I do that. And I really struggle with that. What an interesting, like heart opening conversation it becomes when we're able to articulate our needs, but also from a place of curiosity of understanding our, our partners on the other side, they're triggered, you know, they're yeah. having their own stuff go on. Right. And so it's yeah. again, like, how can we, you know, uh, what we do have control over is not our partner, but ourselves, right? Like that's the, the part yeah. that we're able to work with and how that can shift our partner's attachment style too.
0: Yeah. And then it really turns the relationship into not an I or and you or a me and you. It turns it into an us. Because now you're having a discussion about it. Not like you don't call me and I do this and you do that. Right. It's like this is how I'm feeling. This is what would help me with this. And this person's like, well, right, I I feel like, you know, I I feel like I don't, I, you know, I get triggered when I feel like I have to be super accountable, right? And then you can kind of work out, you know, all right, let's see if we can come to a solution together. What will work for both of us together with this issue?
2: I love that because I feel like a lot of relationships I've been in, maybe the other person and myself both didn't have those skills or kind of were evolved to this point. So it was a lot of I, I, you, you, you know, it was a lot of that on both ends. And, you know, I think I always took it like, we're just not compatible or they would say we're not compatible, but I, I would kind of feel like, but I feel like we are in so many ways, but we just didn't have the tools, you know? And, and I mean, I'm not, when I look back at the people I've dated too, even though the relationships weren't bad, I don't look I at mean, like they were terrible. I I definitely look back. and like, we all were like feet of the spectrum. You know, I, i like, been a special ed teacher so I look at like you know so many different things and behaviors I understand. and understand I'm like we all have so many things that we're dealing with so I don't look back at anyone and be like they were a horrible person I'm just like they did that and I did this and you know but it's really hearing that from both of you about like really opening that communication like that's something for me still that I haven't had anything like that Really yeah. evolved and open, and you know that's a beautiful thing to think of and explore in my future.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and 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 I think that these conversations. I mean, look, I'm still working on this, and I've been in my relationship for quite a long time, and it's a work in progress, right? Because I yeah. wasn't, I wasn't taught these skills. I didn't know anything about attachment really until I went to grad school. Again, this theory is only about 40 years old so it's really relatively new on the scene and all the work around it and especially the stuff with like the neurobiology and it's like oh this yep. is stuff around brains are wiring right so when when you and I have a really great conversation and we feel really connected our brains are actually like firing together right and, that, and then we leave and we're like wow that felt really good to hang out with yeah. Jen I love hanging out with her she, you know I always feel so nourished afterwards So this is like relatively new information. And so, you know, this is all, it can always be a work in progress. And I think that even now, you know, I don't always feel a hundred percent comfortable having these conversations with my partner because I don't know how he's going to react or respond. He might be in a bad mood or he might be like in his head about something, trying to figure something out that he's been working on all day. I have no idea. And so, you know, if I remember, I like to Preface this with: "Is this a good time to talk, or, you know, can we schedule some time so that both parties can, you know, be like, okay, we know that at you know one o'clock this afternoon we're gonna we're gonna have a conversation about something." And the other thing is, is like when I do feel uncomfortable, I kind of let my, I kind of like ask myself like, "What are these feelings about?" And this is all older, older childhood wounding, right? Of like, "I'm not good enough," my, you know. You, you don't, you know, whatever you say doesn't matter. So it's like, I mean, this stuff is imprinted. So this is constant work. So even when you are trying to have these conversations with somebody that you're dating, it's just like, just even notice like that, you know, it's, it, I'm not getting fully dysregulated, but I do feel some slight dysregulation yeah. in my body and it always comes up in my chest. And I'm like, and I have a mini freak out.
2: Yeah, I appreciate that so much. Just hearing also that, you know, with, being involved with a partner for so long. It's not always going to be smooth sailing because sometimes for me too, just interactions with like, if I'm dating someone or just people, it's like, you know, the message you want to get across, but sometimes it's just even the words, you know, just what are the words to get me from here to here? You know, I mean, you know, like people say, sometimes it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And just, there's just so much about it. And it's just, Really is maybe as simple as just kind of saying the truth, you know. Just very not when you're, yeah, not when you're dysregulated. And
1: I love that. Thank you for sharing that. You always say there's a difference between or how how much these overlap when we have or insecurely attached identity versus insecure. Uh, insecure communication, which is yeah. the same as an insecure behavior, an anxious or avoidant behavior can be, maybe it's mirrored by, you know, anxious or avoidant communication, but you could communicate in an avoidant way without actually feeling avoidant, right? But that's that kind yeah. of learned behavior. And I think that's an important distinction of of creating like perhaps a possibility of, is is there something more here? like something more for myself, something more between this person, seeing something in a a possibly different way. And one thing we do know is, right, if we want something different, we have to act, think, be in different ways, feel. If we're not used to feeling, the healing is in the feeling. And, you know, I was thinking about your situation and what do we do when, uh uh-oh, here we have major loss. How do I process that? And now I see how... Uh, response to uh, the uh, deep loss that you experience well how do i navigate with i'm supposed to process that but then i also see relationship issues and then i'm like trying to navigate the relationship issue how does this all make sense so I, this is how i break it down the healing is in the feeling right if we just go back to the creating that awareness around the ambivalent side as well as horse the anxious side and diving into the feelings Stuff around your brother will start to come up, working on how can you, at this point in time, almost repair that relationship in the way of leaning back into what does that look like for you? What would your brother say right now, for example, or just starting to to talk to him? Even if you don't necessarily hear anything back right away, I, I am a believer in, in the other side, <laughs> and I can recommend uh, many books on this, <laughs> but allowing space for that, the possibility for that. And what does that feel like, right? Leaning into that part around your brother, as well as applying all that same stuff to relationships in the sense of what's my relationship like with myself right now? What does this feel like? Even I think, you know, going back to the conversation that Mary just mentioned around, well, if I'm dysregulated, go back into regulation, how do I communicate my need? And I think like a real practical tip here is meeting somebody new. They want to meet for drinks at night. Your preference is to meet for coffee during the day. But rather than, you know, we can get stuck into, okay, now you're out, you know, you have this in your head and maybe you're this kind of, the suspicion starts yeah. to go, yeah. right? Whereas instead we say, you know, drinks, food, I'm, you know, stating your need, asking them how they feel about that. You know, I kind of, I'm not a huge drinker. I kind of prefer Maybe a, a snack or something like What do you think about that? And based on that information, you actually give someone a chance to respond to you in a way that could be supportive, right? Because maybe that person is just saying this because that's what everybody says in, in common yeah. language. Like the Swedes always say me for coffee, whether it's meat for a drink or me for coffee, they just say me for a coffee in, in Swedish, right? So again, we don't know if that person just means that or they mean something else, right? Or yeah. Maybe they say, oh, I didn't really, you know, I'm not a huge drinker either. Or, oh, you're not a big drinker. Okay, let's go do this. Or, oh, that doesn't work for me. Oh, great. Now you have that information onwards. That's not a match, right? But so just by these little things, it does create more of a connection versus a possible disconnection with somebody when we don't even know what it's about.
0: And that's such a great way to practice your own asking for your needs to be met with absolutely no consequence because you don't know this person, right? I mean, it's so, right? You don't know this person. And if they say, no, it's really important for me to get drinks. It's like, okay, well, you know, I, I, that's, I'm not interested in that, but good luck on your search. So, I mean, it's just, it can be such a great, I mean, it's just like, and the more we do that, right, the more we start creating those like connections in our brain, like, yes, I can ask for my needs to be met and that's okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. When we experience loss, anxious types uh, tend to experience and re experience and re experience the trauma, the loss again and again and yeah. again and again, right? It's like it's primed for that. The avoidant type shuts it down. And so, again, I'm thinking about ways to bring your brother back into this where he becomes more an integrated part of your life. Because, again, that's so we can't get away from that but you mentioned all these things that you really valued about your brother's personality and the way he kind of approached life. And again, in a situation like you just mentioned, somebody asking you for drinks, but you prefer coffee. And, you know, maybe even asking your brother, like, what what would you do in this situation? Uh, And kind of allowing that answer. I love that.
2: Yeah, that's really cool. I love that. It's probably something I've never really thought of. I mean, I've thought of. What do you think about other situations with something like that, you know, where, you know, finding a partner is a it's a pretty big choice, of course. So I really like that. It's cool.
1: Yes. And you see how that starts to fire up the support within you of, oh, I'm, I'm not so alone in this experience. And that right there, all these little ways, compassion, Mary mentioned that is an essential of secure attachment, feeling supported in all these ways. Just like we mentioned all these different risk factors that can lead to insecure yeah. attachment. All these different actions that we do lead us back to secure attachment. Yeah. I love that. I love that.
2: That's definitely things I've never really thought about. You know, like my brother, like I never in a million years fully would have thought of that. You know. And just taking so many things back to him, you know, where I think. You know, when you asked what the relationship was like now, I don't think I ever would have thought of just so many little things in my daily life, like you know what would he think or what would he do and and he was a really dynamic person, and i think in a lot of ways in my life, I've tried to kind of you know the habits that I had around me and you know the friends and and things they were into, and then trying to get away I think I have in a way tried to live up to him, you know I mean. You know, I, I think I I saw a friend yesterday, and I was like, I'm just in a place right now where I'm trying to almost say yes to everything. You know, like socially, you know, going to things and seeing people and opportunities, you know, in life, things for my kids, just all our extracurricular things. You know, like maybe I'm taking on too much, but you know, just opening things up with yes, and then finding out what you know where the dust settles and what works. So I like that thinking. You know, I I really do kind
1: of aspire to be like him. So that's cool. I like that. And again, leaning into not just what would you do, but allowing yourself to have a felt experience about his response. You know, what is that like for you to hear that, right? And allow your feelings about it, not just, shall we say, going into blind guidance, because again, that work is around that felt experience. Like it's always back to that. And how we support ourselves through that?
0: Yeah, maybe maybe it was your brother who was like, "Okay, enough with these friends." (laughs) Maybe he (laughs) would, because you said, "I don't know why I just," and so I mean, I I like to believe that there can be some, you know, guidance from the other side, little a little push. It's like I don't know why I made the decision that I made, but I ended up going in a better direction.
2: Yeah lots of bumps in the road, but definitely, you know, I'm glad the direction I went. And yeah, that's, that's probably something I've never really thought of, you know, putting those pieces of the puzzle of life and why things happen and why they end up the way they were, they they are. Yeah. It's interesting. It Because it wasn't something that was very planned out leaving. And, you know, my dad wasn't happy about it. And and all those things like that. So I just kind of think, you know, maybe he had a hand in that.
1: A friend of mine who is a doctor and operates on babies and children in the womb who have like gnarly birth defects in case she was li- delivering the news of death a lot of the time. Wow. And she is a medium. And one day we were talking and I said, oh, I'm a highly, you know, and am empathic being, and I feel very intuitive and connected, yet I, I don't hear messages on the other side. And she said, well, how do you expect to hear them? And I thought of basically how I'm speaking to you right now. And she said, well, maybe the issue is actually and how you expect the messages to be delivered. And again, I say this, taking it back to that secure attachment, is allowing that trust in understanding life in a new way, in connection with not just the material world, but also the immaterial world or things we do not know, and allowing those signs, connections to come in in new ways, right? And in a way, you know, I mean, none of us want to go through the experience of loss. And all of us, if we're alive on this planet long enough, in a way, are going to be lucky enough to experience it because we are still living or not lucky enough, however you want to look at that. But the bottom line is we're we're going to have to, right? Mm-hmm. And so the silver lining becomes how can we let this transform us? How can we let it enrich our relationships rather than throw us back into the insecure place? How can we let it bring us further into, uh, sorry, throw us back into the insecure place? How can we let it throw us into security? I
2: never just at that. That's really... That's kind of a new concept for me, to be honest, you know, and I have friends and I've always been interested in, you know, kind of life after what else is out there. And at times I felt when I was younger, I was really connected and I felt like I got to a point where it just freaked me out. And I was like, please, like, don't show me anything. I don't want to feel anything. It was just scary. And maybe I cut it off, but it's kind of interesting to think that, you know, The healing that could come from that which i never would have thought of i never would have thought even talking state like that this would be something that would kind of you know open up and like open my mind to it so i mean it's definitely something i i think i have to explore you know i never thought of that
1: invitations all invitations and i truly believe like secure attachment right is that Connection with possibility, it's a true abundant mentality. Uh, Jen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank and you. for all of you out there who've been experienced loss, there is support, and you don't have to stay in pain forever, and the healing is in the feeling, and if you're struggling with relationships, the same still applies. while anxiety, I just want to give this shout out, while anxiety can be a feeling of pain. There are also feelings underneath it. So when I say healing is in the feeling, it's feeling what's beneath the anxiety, not just the anxiety itself.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being so vulnerable. Thank you for sharing your story. And, you know, just, I don't know what else to say. It was just, just you know, you just made this podcast so amazing. So thank you. Thank you for thank reaching you.
2: out. Thank you both for having me so I, much. I
0: hope your brother kind of pushed was typing those words in the in the dm
2: <laughs> <laughs> thank you he probably was and i probably will get in touch with that soon so yeah i no, thank you i do feel like it's something kind of something kind of divine when i did mm. i was like i'm gonna take a chance and message them and even though i might feel kind of like a cuckoo person i'm gonna do it so thank you both so much That means so much to me.
0: Well, you definitely brought a lot of happiness into our our mailbox by DMing us. So I really appreciate it from my heart. So thank you. It's so great to have real people, real listeners to come on the show because it just shows how impactful just listening to a podcast can be. I know I have my own podcast that I listen to religiously and I learn so much from podcasts. So, if you're interested in being on the show or have any questions, collaborations, anything else, please DM me on my Instagram at Mary B Therapy or visit me on my website, MaryBtherapy.com. And thanks for listening.